Hello, everyone. This is Tyson, and you are listening to the CRE Deal Flow Show. Uh, today's show, we're going to talk to Andy Chapman. If you listened or haven't listened to our first episode with Andy, Andy's an appraiser, and he focuses on mobile home and RV parks, specifically on the West Coast. Uh, so we decided to sit down with him, revisit that in our current market conditions. When we recorded the show, it was the end of 2022. And so he gives us a snapshot into what's happening uh, in the current market with rising interest rates and uh, a lot of stuff just kind of going chaotic. So uh, I wanted to make this quick intro because the mic apparently wasn't working well when we recorded it on my end. So I apologize for that. The audio isn't great. You can hear me, uh, but you can hear him. And uh, that's the most important part. So I hope you still enjoy the show. Take some nuggets from it. Sit back, relax, and thanks for listening. You're listening to CRE Deal Flow with Tyson Cross. In this show, we'll talk about what it means to hustle as a broker, investor, and lifelong learner in the world of commercial real estate. There is a proven path to growing a successful commercial real estate business and long-term passive income. And now, here's your host, Tyson Cross. All right, what's up, everyone? This is Tyson, and welcome to another episode of now CRE Deal Flow. We just do mobile home parks in it, CRE Commercial Real Estate Deal Flow. And I'm excited to welcome back Andy Chapman to the show. If uh, For those who listened to the show, he was on last year and gave us a, an update and an overview on what it means to underwrite mobile home parks and some RV parks too, but he's really focused on the Northwest. And uh, Andy, you, you made a jump from Collier's over to JLL, right? This year was in August of this year, I I, um, I switched over to JLL and I'm now the national lead for their MHC valuation practice. So previously, I, I was just operating in the Pacific Northwest and now I'm appraising nationally and I have a team of appraisers that I'm working with. And yeah, we were, you know, I still have a strong focus on the Pacific Northwest being based here, but appraising MHCs and RV parks across the, uh, across the country now. So it's been just very interesting to learn about all the different markets across the country and and yeah, it's been a, a lot of fun so far. Cool. Congrats on that, man. Thank you. What do you see just in terms of that? I mean, traveling more, you're seeing other parts, lots of different parts of the country. Obviously, there's some, some differences in terms of maybe expenses, but also income. What do you think the biggest difference is when you look at parts across the country versus maybe the West Coast? So biggest differences are just how each state handles taxes. There's such a wide range of, um, of approaches. Each state has a completely different way that a sale can, can impact or not. Um, so that's been a, a huge, uh, huge learning curve, just learning all the different ways that that can be handled. Um, and just it being in the Pacific Northwest, MHC, as you know, MHCs and RV parks have been such a hot property type. You know, just yeah. the, the activity has been so strong. You know, parks rarely make it onto the market for if they do, you know, it's it's for about a week, if if that long. And there are multiple offers. So there are some definitely some markets across the country where they're, you know, they're they're still very popular, but not as not as hot as they, they have been in the Pacific Northwest. Also, just also different ways people handle park owned homes. I know we talked about that last time coming up more and more as we appraise this year. Yeah, there's a lot of parks across the country maybe in the Midwest, North Plains, that have a lot of park-owned homes, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. They're almost, they're almost operated like rental communities and, you know, there'll be an 80 space park and 60 park owned homes. And in a sale, you know, you have to figure out how, how that factors in and it's, it, it's, it, it can be challenging. That's, that's for sure. Real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, one of the interesting thing about mobile home parks and RV parks when you compare it to other asset classes is there, the comps are difficult. And for example, when you look at apartments, I mean, there's usually dozens of comps for any given property, right? And it's pretty yeah. easy because you can say, look, I got two bedrooms, one bath, 800 square feet, you know, it's a class C, garden stop, whatever it is, there's usually many comps for value. And one of the, uh, the things that I find interesting, but also really difficult about this asset class is comps are super hard and, and they're all just each property is very different from the next. How do you guys determine, and maybe we talked a little bit about this last time, but do you consider that one of the challenges to what you do is like finding comps and then how do you justify it being a relevant comp versus not? Walk us through that process that you guys have for that. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I'm glad you asked because that, that is definitely something that comes up in reviews of our work and things. And so, like I said, you know, I previously was working mostly in Washington and Idaho, but now that I'm working nationally, MHCs, I, I believe more than any other asset class lends them lends themselves to being appraised in more of a regional or national way. As you know, there's a finite number of these parks. You know, if you work in a certain city, if it's an apartment building, you know, they're just there are going to be dozens and dozens of, of, of comparables to choose from, but there's are not that is not going to be the same situation with MHCs. There are only going to be so many that are comparable in a given market, and for them to also have sold, you know, within a relatively short short period of time, you know, that's even more rare. So you definitely have to take more of a regional approach to looking for sales. You know, a good example would be the I five corridor on the West Coast. You know, in Washington, if a park were to sell in the I five corridor, I just would not have enough sales in the past year to support that sale. So I would need to look, you know, into Oregon, into California, because that's also where the what the buyers are doing as well. They're not looking at a park in Washington and, and saying like, I only want to look at sales in Washington. They're looking more regionally and nationally for where rents are at or where cap rates are at and uh, what's possible. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it is, it is a challenge in making sure that that, you know, in our appraisals, that, that, that is clear to the reader, that that's why more of a national or regional approach is, is more applicable for manufactured housing or RV parks. Yeah. And do you find that like getting that info is kind of hard? I mean, a lot of times, like what I've noticed, they say that every part or every property on a sale is recorded, right? So by the county, yeah. so it becomes public records, but sometimes I see parts don't show up, right? And a lot of people use yeah. are. Why is that? Are they? Yeah. I mean, I think that if it's, you mean how, like they don't get to national publications like CoStar? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you were to, because I know, so if you work with an escrow or title company, they can pull reports for public records of sales, but they can only do it to a specific geographic region. So like, for example, Chicago title in Portland, I don't think they can pull everything wherever they want, right? I think, yeah. I think they have to outsource it to other offices. So maybe that's the case. Maybe it's because you don't see the public record pulling up in every spot. Like, for example, there's parts that trade, you know, we'll call an owner and say, hey, you still own this park. And they say, no, I sold that like three years ago. But there's no record of it. Yeah. Even CoStar, for example. Yeah. So for CoStar, since so many of these are off market or pocket deals, um, you know, like where where maybe you brought it directly to, you know, one of your one of your more active buyers, um, that unless somebody is proactively trying to get that information out there, I'm not sure how it would even get to CoStar because CoStar is not necessarily combing through, um, you know, uh, counties databases to see what what is what is possibly sold um 
and whatnot. It might be something that, that, that you know, they got into the listing and then they and then as it closed, they they got that information. They followed up on it. But um, if it wasn't openly listed and it's just, you know, kind of sold in an off market way, it's it's hard for that information to get out into get out to the industry, you know, through the ways that it can is through an appraisal An appraisal. That's how I that's how I get a lot of a lot of information on sales are just being uh, being engaged to appraise the property as it's sold. And in that process, talking to the broker like yourself, you know, people that are tuned with the market. Usually I can find some sales that way. CoStar can be CoStar can be pretty good for finding sales. I've had success there. You definitely want to um, follow up on all the, the pertinent information just to make sure, you know, because things can get input incorrectly. And I've had that happen before. So you want to make sure you follow up on that. But yeah, I mean, it can be difficult to find out sales. You know, I've the most success I've found is just talking to brokers, talking to buyers, people that are really active. They will know which parks have been have been available or which potentially are. And 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 um, yeah, just to, so just having conversations with people in the market. That's the best way for me to find sales. Yeah, because I'm not I'm not aware of a, a centralized location where, you know, you, you're just getting great information on all these all these uh, transactions. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is like I think notoriously the park space has been pretty private. Mm -hmm. and so I think a lot of people just don't want to share the info. So, yeah, especially with a broker, I'm sure you get a little bit more information uh, in easily given because you're like, hey, I'm an appraiser. I'm, this is my job. Right. So I'm not, yeah. I'm not using this info to go like tell some other buyer, but I'm using this because yeah. it's part of what we need. Right. So people are probably a little more compliant when you call and you're like, hey, I'm using this because I'm appraising, uh, appraising a property nearby. I would, do you get like, does he ever get pushback on that? Um, well, I'm in a pretty good position now at this, at this point in my career where I have, you know, information I can trade. I can kind of, you know, I can trade information for yeah. sale, for, you know, for sale information. So it kind of, you know, if it's just an appraiser calling out of the blue, um, you know, for, for sale information that it's, it's a little more difficult. I would, you know, for, I would suggest that, you know, have something to offer, you know, like have your rent survey. Maybe you can share some rent comparables or something. You know, you're not just, um, begging for information. You have something to share, something to offer. That's really helpful. So, you know, when brokers are involved in a sale, they can actually, you know, call me and let me know, you know, what's going on and say, Hey, what else have you heard? And if, if it's something I can share, then I'm, I'm always happy to do that too. So, um, yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that's what we try to do too, is just give something in return, right? Not just take yeah. um try to be a resource too. Yeah, for sure. And I think people are pretty receptive to that. I notice a lot of people don't want to share price, so you know, whether it's the tax thing, right? If they're gonna be reassessed, they don't yes. want to they don't want that to get out, which makes sense, and then some people would just private on that. So Yeah, and then some say. of the, the yeah, the states that are non disclosure states, um, you know, I, those those ones can be extra hard to find sales sales in like Idaho. And, you know, you you have to have relationships with brokers in the area. And sometimes, you know, they will share information with you, but it'll be in a confidential way. Whereas they're like, please don't put this in your report, <laughs> which can be difficult. But, you know, that it is what it is. I mean, it's a non-disclosure state. So um, you just have to work around it. I'm going to give you all the info, but you can't use it, Andy. Yeah, okay. I know. That, that puts me in a really tough spot. Uh, <laughs> when you're talking so, to the lenders <laughs> right right trust me i've got the scoop <laughs> so obviously right now 2022 end of 2022 not end but we're in october middle of october which is crazy the market's changing yeah. very every, i think everybody feels it now very quickly interest rates mm -hmm. have climbed significantly in a very short period of time and i think that's the biggest thing that we feel right such that yeah biggest or fastest jump and such a big gap i think there were like five or six rate hikes by the fed and yeah. probably more to come so talk to us about what you're seeing right now you don't have to be too specific you don't want to but i know people are interested in this right now and, and i mean you can take it wherever you want 
So, yeah, I definitely saw an impact beginning in August of this year. You know, the activity for refinances definitely dropped off. It seemed like refinancing, you know, there there are a lot of property owners who needed to refinance. And if, if you're up for that, then people are going forward with it. But if you didn't have to, then, you know, there, there definitely aren't, you're not seeing those refinances of people jumping on, uh, you know, the, the current interest rate. So definitely a lot of a slower activity in regards to refinancing. Sales have slowed down too. We're not seeing as many transactions for the class A or class B assets. Yeah, like not a ton. Parks. Yeah, like the five-star parks, not seeing those transfer as much. Um, but there's been so much activity with those parks over the past couple of years that it almost feels that the most of them that we're going to sell have sold over the past couple of years. So it's been a slowdown there as well. It feels like there are a lot of buyers that are on the sidelines right now, maybe waiting to find out, waiting to see where things are headed before they jump back in. But we are still seeing a ton of activity from buyers, you know, that, are, that have been buying up like class C, two star, two and a half star parks. I still see a lot of transactions at that level. And, and the buyers who have always been very active in that, that grade of a class um, are still active. You know, the ones that are targeting more mom and pop owners um, who maybe, you know, aren't, don't own as many parks. Those are those kind of transactions we're still seeing. A lot of the transactions we are seeing, like we just talked about earlier, are some of the messier parks to appraise or to value. Um, the ones that have like a mix of MH spaces and RV spaces with maybe, you know, a number of park owned homes mixed in. We're seeing a lot of transactions in that of parks like that. Those are still moving. Um, and those are making up more the more the majority of the appraisals that we've been working on in the last in the last month, I'd say. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like um, the people who have to sell are still going to sell, right? So it's kind of the yeah the people who were taking advantage of the market. A lot of these five star parks really probably they got offers they had never imagined over the last couple of years, and they're getting it. For and they're sure. Like, wow, I'm going to take that, and that's For probably sure. drying up now. I mean, a lot of the institutional buyers that we speak with are not really they're sort of a lot of them are. I don't want to say pencils down, but they're like, they're taking a pause until yes. sort of starts to recalibrate, I guess, or stabilize. And so um, that's definitely slowing things down for sure. But you're still going to have people that have to sell, right? Whether, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a number, there's a few different reasons primarily, but there's still going to be people that have to sell. Are you seeing appraisals coming in lower than the, the contract? I mean, like, are, there's usually like, a, I mean, you have this point now where things got into contract maybe a couple months ago. And the market shifted significantly since then. Even are you seeing? Are you coming into deals and you're like, man, how are you? Are we getting that price now based on the debt that they're getting, or is that not so much the case? I mean, I haven't seen that yet. Okay. What we're mostly seeing is like cap rates are they're not going down anymore. Um, they're kind of they're kind of stable right now. The values aren't haven't gone down on the parks per se, but they're kind of flatlined a little bit, I'd say. And and when we're projecting, you know, a lot of the parks people, you know, they're buying and, you know, with the upside, you know, the upside is not as, as not as clear, I guess, long, long term where, you know, cap rates were going, you know, we're seeing sub three cap rates. We may be seeing fewer of those, but we still, you know, there's still in, 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 in areas like I'm trying to think of a, of a, of a state right now in areas where there still are a lot of mom and pop owned properties 
as opposed to institutionally owned properties where, you know, say the rents are around $500, but the institutional folks that are in that are now in the market are saying it's around 750 and that's what that's what the market's saying. Those parks that are still at 500 are are still very desirable and there's still a ton of upside, but um, a lot of the a lot of them have been scooped up by institutional grade buyers. So there's just fewer there's just fewer properties to um I guess fewer properties out there. I've talked to a couple of lenders that said that yeah, they're just the quality they're not getting as many quality quality opportunities to lend on. It's more like I said earlier, more of the the properties that kind of have a mix of of property types um, or, or a mix of MH and RV and maybe yeah. some park owned homes. Yeah. Yeah. Are you seeing cap rates go up on those types of assets though? I would imagine so. I've seen a couple sales with cap rates that were higher than I would expect. You know, up over seven that I wouldn't have I wouldn't have anticipated seeing. You know, a year ago. Um, yeah. And those those are ones with uh, you know the cap rates can get higher when when you have a mix of MH and RV and you have some vacancy yeah. that maybe is indicative of the market in that area in the in Washington you know MH sites and RV sites are so popular that almost all parks are either at 100% and if they're not it's probably something to do with how it's been managed or how it's being absorbed um, rather than the market but now that I'm seeing more markets across the country there are some you know some properties that are only getting up to 80% and maybe that's where the market is and if you can't fill the rest of those spaces yeah some higher cap rates are are, are applicable because maybe the upside isn't there that is in some of the other stronger markets. Yeah. And so what about the upside? So you mentioned that the upside isn't counted maybe or weighed heavily as it used to be. Are you then, it's got to be market by market, I would imagine. So if it's, it's depending on the market it in, maybe you're going to give it some more weight versus, let's say, a rent control market versus a non-rent control market. Are you still giving weight to the pro forma in those scenarios? We're still giving weight because there's still yeah. a, a big gap between the, you know, MH rents and what's, you know, what is being paid for apartments right now. But it is, it keeps closing. And, um, you know, at some point you're going to be at set of what, what people can afford for rent. So, um, yeah, there are some markets where the rent is up pretty high, but it's, you know, it, it, it feels like you're getting close to the ceiling. But um, like I said, you know, there's some markets where the, you know, they've got a lot of mom and pop type owners or less savvy owners where the rents are, you know, sometimes 40% below what the market is now telling us from some of these institutional buyers that are in the, in the same market and, and are getting that rent and you know, not losing any occupancy or anything like that. Yeah, those par parks are always going to be desirable because they're always going to have that upside. Also, the parks where the utilities are included in the lot rent, as you know, there's credible upside in being able to submeter a park and, and shift those expenses over to the uh, the tenants. That's big. Do you, do you put more weight on uh, or value in parks that have that? So, for example, a park that's got submetered water and sewer versus a non-park or a non-submetered park, do you typically put a little more value in that park that has the submeter? Well, you, I think you'll naturally get more value out of that just because when if it's public water and public sewer and it's included in the lot rent there's not really any accountability for the usage for the tenants right so you can water your lawn all day long if you want to or you know you got a running running toilet or whatever it's there's not really as much um incentive to get it get it fixed but if, unless when you're paying for it then yeah there's uh, more accountability for your um for your water usage and that's such so i think it will naturally lower your utility bill i mean it would be it would be getting reimbursed by the tenants in in that situation but you you naturally are going to relo are going to lower your usage and it, it does create more value and you know a, a lower rate cap rate can be applicable for a park that has the uh utilities included because you know that there is that upside in the park switching those that over to the um the tenants and you know increasing your noi okay so so yeah maybe you're going to put a lower cap rate just from a, a upside perspective that was yeah. kind of my question because you know obviously it's going to change the noi if you're passing the water through and you're not having that expense 
having an owner. But, yeah. um, you know, like in Oregon, you got to back the rent according to what you've been paying for water and sewer or what the tenants have been paying. So if you yeah. had a net net comparison, like that's that was sort of my question is like to you, you've got one park in Oregon that's not passed through, the other park is, their rents are lower by the delta that the water and sewer has been paying, costing anyway. So, in other words, you've got one park that's paying for it, one park that the tenants are paying for it. The net NOI is the same. Does somebody look at a park? And let's say the rents are still have some upside in the rent. Does somebody maybe give a little more value on a cap rate basis to say, you know what, I'll pay a little more for that because the tenants are paying the water and sewer? Or in your case, you're saying there's upside there, but but it's hard to just buy upside there because you still have to back the rent in, in the state of Oregon. So maybe it's yeah, different. I mean, you definitely don't want to use a cap rate that would make the upside um, eclipse the value of the park that already has that switched over because there's incentive. I mean, to go through the process of, of switching the utilities over to the tenants, I mean, that's a that's a huge undertaking. Um, you know, there could be pushback from the tenants and whatnot. So you want to make sure the owner who had who has done that work, you know, is is incentivized. But you'd want to use a cap rate that showed, yeah, there's, there's definitely more value here than just like where the lot rent's at. There's upside here, but you don't want to give them a cap rate that you know overvalues that as if it's in place now got it so there yeah. well, theoretically it, it probably becomes more sellable right if somebody passed through utilities and like from a buyer standpoint i know a lot of buyers ask us hey are, are these utilities passed through we have a park that we're listing for sale and, and we've said hey the, all the utilities are passed through a lot of a lot of buyers like that because it just sort of removes the responsibility um, yeah and so they're like okay well that just means every time i increase the rent that's just the bottom basically changes the bottom line, um, yeah. assuming expenses don't go up, if that's not the case. So anyway, that was why I asked. Yeah, no, that, that, yeah that's, a, no, that's a great question. So I guess talk to us about like how you're looking at expenses going into 2023. Things have gone up, inflation, we're obviously in inflation right now. Are you seeing trends showing higher expenses? When you look at these, as we do, you sort of have a, an idea of what a market standard should be from like, you know, R&M, there's sort of an industry standard depending on where you are, you know, utility costs, if it's public facilities, trash, maybe some admin costs. Are you starting to see those change or, or, or how this, you know, how is what we're going through affecting that? Yeah, that, that's a great question because this is another thing that's uh, that's impacting value and, um, you know, will you know, will impact value going forward. And I, I give you an example. I own a park um, with a partner and, you know, we did it. We had a $50 rent increase implemented um, this year. Um, and then right after we implemented, we we're like, okay, we're going to have some extra money to, to fix up this community. However, found out that our garbage, uh, our garbage service, which is included in the lot rent at this particular park, uh, went up by $40 uh, per, per unit. So there went, <laughs> there went our, there went our rent, rent increase completely. So uh, that was a little bit of a bummer, a hard pill to swallow, but th- sure, they're man. definitely, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It was about a month. Um, (laughs) I know. Um, So they're definitely, inflation is definitely impacting our, our industry. Um, You know, insurance costs have gone up. At, at for some for some owners and operators um you know we we try to stabilize that expense because individual park owners can basically have any amount of insurance coverage that they want you know you can you can you can over insure it or you know under insure it so we usually try to stabilize that one and it's typically been around gosh depending on the market between 60 and 100 dollars per per space but that may be you know that might might not be holding for you know in today's market maybe it's going to be 100 to 125 or a little bit more so we're keeping our eye on that right That's yeah yeah sure yeah and if you're in a floodplain um you know you're in a 100 year floodplain that could be even even more you know so that that cost we're definitely looking at utility expenses are going up 
like like I said. Um, also, you know, repair and maintenance costs. We've been in the 200 to 300 per um, unit range. That's another one that we at, we like to stabilize just because, you know, the historicals can include capital expenditures and even, you know, expenses for, for things outside of the park, you know, depending on how it's been operated historically. So, um, that's a that's a big one for us to stabilize, but but 250 or 200 to 300, maybe that's not the true cost at at this point. So that may be maybe increasing a little bit, and it is it does impact um impact value a little bit. Yeah, and certainly I think cost of good good health is going up too. Just people to manage that's going to go up. Yes. As well. Yeah, you know, typically we've been in the three, you know, for an MHC, usually around 3%, you know, sometimes 3 to 5%, 5% for an RV park, that, that may be changing. And maybe the on-site, on-site management is going up a little bit too, because um, these, you know, their, their costs are going up, definitely. Are you saying five, three to 5% for on-site management or off-site? Off-site, sorry. Okay, I was going to say, dang, dude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, for off-site management, yeah. <laughs> um, so off-site, yes. Yeah. Three to five percent offsite, but what would like um, we talked about this in the last one? But onsite, how do you how do you factor that? Because everybody's got all kinds of different things, right? A lot of people employ somebody to be in the park, and then of course you got third party management. But typically, I mean, is there like a, a good metric that you use to just say, hey, based on that size park, I would do this? Yeah, I mean, you know, you kind of have to think about how many people you think would need to be on site to, to have the property operational. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, you just need, if it's a smaller park and it, it's, um, you can kind of handle it with just, you know, offering one space to that manager and maybe that's all all you need to run it and then maybe another maintenance guy or two so it kind of depends on how how much how much staff you really need but i mean generally around 250 dollars per unit was a standard that i was around if the historicals were showing the manager could be paying himself or herself a, a lot of money to maintain the park maybe more than than is uh than is necessary so you definitely want to um stabilize that one but some, that one can be a little bit lower uh you know, be two hundred dollars. It just depends on the size of the park and how many people you think you'd need there to operate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a there's it's all over the board. It is all over the board. It's yeah. It's it's and then another one that um I've handled this historically. Uh, you know, sometimes people will do a line item for you know deducting for um for the manager's space or employee space in the pro forma. A statement I've been putting in my reports is that the the vacancy allowance of usually it's around like five percent of the park if you're a, a property that is 100 percent occupied with all tenant owned homes and you're using a five percent vacancy i mean if it's being managed well we both know that the occupancy is not going to drop below 95 percent or you know if it does if the occupancy drops it's usually by one or two units you know as they're being refilled and it's very temporary so what i like to do is just say that the manager's unit is accounted for in that vacancy allowance. And I've, I've typically had no issues with lenders for that. It's more representative of the park's value to not make another deduction for, for that unit when it already is pretty much accounted for in that vacancy allowance. Yeah, I like that. Do yeah. You, um, this might be off topic a little bit, but do you see when people sell homes in the community, are you seeing a lot of tenant or a lot of owners reset lot rents to market when somebody yeah, especially when you see those parks, yeah, like the larger operators purchase and the rent is just 
way below market, but they don't, they want to be sensitive to their existing, existing tenant base. You know, they'll have like, say, you know, the rent was around $500 and markets around 800. They'll have all new tenants coming in at 800, you know, and if they do it, like you said, if the home sells to a new tenant, then the new lot rent will be 800, but then they'll be bringing the legacy tenants up to, you know, getting them up to 800, but more at a slower rate. They're not going to do just a $300 rent increase or a $200 one. It's kind of like just bring, bring them up slowly up to market. Yeah. Yeah, one thing that probably does that, too for tenants is they see the new lot rent for somebody moving in, and it probably shows them, hey, this is where it's going to go, you know, or at least give them an idea so they're not, they're probably a little more receptive to when those increases come in, you know, and as long as they're like stepping up, right? Probably yeah, and they can feel like they're still that. getting a de- some sort of a deal. Um, right. And sometimes the seller, sometimes the seller actually will stipulate that in the purchase and sale agreement that, hey, you know, you can't raise the rent on our legacy tenants, you know, by a certain percentage each year for a certain amount of time. Um, I've seen that before, too. Oh, you mean the seller says that to the new buyer? Yeah, yeah. Just as a way of, you know, as a as a as something they're doing for the tenants on their way out on the way out. I've, I've definitely seen that before. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, uh, we've got a few more minutes here. Do you want to you want to share kind of where you think where you think the market's going? I mean, maybe that's too broad of a question, but do you anticipate uh, having as many sales next year, or do you think the market's going to slow down? Give us your thoughts going into twenty twenty three. What you predict? Wow. Yeah. So. Going into yeah, so we're we're in the fourth quarter, and I think that just there's going to be a ton of activity, just as fourth quarters always are. And I think that it's yeah, just a ton of activity. And then in the first quarter of next year, I think things are going to slow down, and I think that people are really going to really going to think about their next moves. So I think that in the MHC and RV park space, affordable housing is always going to be desirable. And we, if we are headed for a recession, it's going to be even more desirable. People say it's recession proof, but it's not totally recession proof, but um, you know, it's still an attractive asset in harder times, just because there's always going to be demand for affordable housing. Affordable housing has become even more, there's there's just tons more demand for it even now, just as apartment apartment rents have gone up and home prices have you know, skyrocketed. So manufactured housing, I think will continue to be a very attractive uh, uh, property type, but um, I think the activity will slow. And, you know, there are a finite amount of these things. Um, you know, at some point, you know, the majority of the parks that are going to be, they're going to transact in this time period are, will have transacted. So um, just naturally, I think there will be a slowdown in that sense. Yeah, no, great thoughts. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate you sharing your info and kind of what you're up to and any, any last yeah. party thoughts. I mean, I know, I know people can probably get a hold of you. We'll put your email down at the bottom or any info that you want, but, uh, yeah. yeah, please reach out. I'm at I'm at JLL now. Um, and uh, yeah, Tyson will, Tyson will post my email and phone number. Um, please reach out if you have any questions about the industry, um, appraisals you may need. Happy to share information that I'm that I'm able to share. And yeah, please please reach out. I'm happy to help. And I'm working all across the country now. And we've got a team of talented uh, talented appraisers working with me. So um, we'd be happy to happy to work with you. Awesome. Thanks, man. Have a great day. We'll uh, chat soon. Okay. Thank you so much, Tyson. All right. See ya. Okay. Bye.